0: Hey, everybody. This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast. I am Stephen Cox, and this is a special edition. Today, we are joined again by our friend John Miller, who will be hosting today's show. He is Organizational Development Practitioner with the Department of Human Resources with King County. He's also the father to four boys and is a co-founder of a Black African Affinity Group for King County employees. John, it's good to talk to you again. How are you, man?
1: I'm good, brother. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. And I'll just ask you, you know, it's been a month since we... Last spoke on the show, I'd be curious to get your observations of everything that's happened since, and there's been a lot that has happened. Uh, are you still feeling hopeful?
1: Absolutely, I can't help but be hopeful, Stephen. Um, I, it, not having hope would be settling in and accepting oppression as a continuous norm, right? And my Uh, family and friends and community can ill afford to continue living in this space.
0: It feels like there is still, to me anyway, it feels like there is still a sense of momentum from uh, a lot of the the protests, the uprisings, and really the awareness that we have seen that uh, had stemmed originally from the police killing of George Floyd and others. Are you still feeling that sense of momentum?
1: Yeah, I'm feeling some of the momentum, the, the momentum still happening. It's still, the, the, because the protests aren't um, in front of us and on media all day, every day, it feels like there's been a little bit of momentum loss, And yet I'm still seeing um, some of our entertainers and our politicians and um, our athletes and community members still stand strong. Uh, King County itself has declared racism as a public health crisis and is doing work to intentionally uh, transform systems um, through our budget process, through how we provide services and policies that we design. Um, We're thinking about what it looks like to have a cold liberated future that involves everyone, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for doing that work. And, you know, thank you especially for continuing this discussion here on the show. I want, and I know that my listeners want to keep racial equity issues front of mind. And By the way, I will just tell you, and I think you're probably aware that the panel, the first panel that you did got just incredible feedback. Are you aware of the impact that it made?
1: Um, I, yeah, for the folks that I kind of have a direct relationship and a little that I've seen on social media, um, I'm hoping that um, because of its purpose of being medicine for the soul, that it touches as many people as possible because there's a healing component to it.
0: Well, so then tell us that goes right into my next question, which is to ask you to tell us about what you've prepared for this week's show.
1: Uh, this is chapter two. I have labeled it for soul medicine. Um, And this is where we are centering the feminine voice. We've got some dynamic women in the community that are doing amazing work um, in King County, outside of King County, and there's a wide range. We've got our elder, our youth representation. We've got the intersection of of LGBTQ and race and multi-race, right? And what that and how racism actually impacts and you know, systems of oppression actually have impacted them. And um, and it's just a powerful, powerful experience is still resonating strong with me.
0: I am very excited to share this with people. And I will just mention that before we get started, uh, there's a piece of music that is featured very briefly in your discussion. This is a song by an artist who goes by H-E-R and it is called Lord is Coming. For legal reasons, we have only got a a snippet of the song featured in your panel, but uh, I do have a link to the complete recording in the show notes, and I very much encourage people to check it out either before or during the panel discussion. What can you tell us about this song? Why was it chosen?
1: Ah, the message. I I think when when listeners... If you take the opportunity to listen to the song, you'll know exactly why the song was chosen. Um, there's the 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 participants on this podcast. Oh, that they, they speak on the impacts, and just in that listening to that song before listening to the impacts of the song, and how it segues into the rest of the conversation that is held, um, it, it it all would all become self-explanatory. And I actually encourage you, as listeners, to take the time to listen to it and think about what it is that you're feeling, where it is that you're feeling it, and, and how you can live into creating something more beautiful for all of us.
0: Thank you for saying that. And like I said, I've got the link in the show notes, and I really do encourage people, even if you want to just hit pause right now, take a second, watch the video, listen to the song, and then uh, resume. Anything else you want people to know before we get started? Nope.
1: Nothing more than um, we all have to be in this together to actually achieve systemic transformation.
0: John, as always, I am so grateful to you for doing this, man. Thank you.
1: Thank you, sir. Greetings. Welcome into this space. This is Soul Medicine, Chapter 2. I am your moderator, John Miller, son of Dee, Johnny, Pete, Karen, grandson of Leola, Lawrence, Cecilia, Aquila, partner of Lakeisha, father of Kyrie, Asaias, Jaden, and Jeremiah. I am imperfection in pursuit of excellence. Welcome. With me, I have my life vessels, sisters, and matriarchs that are my collective brilliance and co-liberators, who will have the opportunity to introduce themselves in a moment. Before we proceed, I'd like to just take the time to acknowledge our great spirit, our creator, our ancestors, that includes the many that we've lost to racism, police violence, COVID-19. I want to also Acknowledge that we are on Native American lands my Native American sisters and brothers. I see you. I hear you. I value you. I recognize the Colish Salish tribes, some of which are the Duwamish, the Lumi, Muckleshoot, the Squally, the Puyallup. I want to acknowledge those voices that are missing from this conversation. Other BIPOC voices, other two spirited voices. I want to also acknowledge the seven directions, the north, the south, the east, the west, the heavens, earth, and most importantly, our inner self inward. I want to acknowledge my earliest known ancestor, Benjamin Addison, freed three years before transitioning to the spirit world on March of 1866 at the age of 70. I thank you for your sacrifice for living in me, in how it is that I show up today. I wanna express some gratitude to our partners, family, community that holds us, Indivisible, Stephen Cox, Chris Frankel, community who made time to listen to chapter one. Before we proceed with the rest of this programming, I'd like to take time to acknowledge and ask for our elder, Miss Anita Whitfield, for permission to proceed with this programming
2: gratefully and honorably grant that permission. Thank you, dear brother.
1: Thank you, Ms. Anita. I'd also like to take some time before we go further in this program to speak on what we are not. We're not representatives of all Black, African-American, African voices, perspectives, and experiences. We're not here to compare contrast to Chapter 1. This story sharing is available as medicine and nourishment for our collective soul. We are not perfect. Personally, my patriarchy and my internalized racial oppression has consciously and subconsciously harmed members of our community, in particular, our women. At this time, I'd like to pause and allow for a little time to reflect on a song by Her, featuring YBM Corday.
3: Every day I pray for mankind. We're all slaves to a generation socialized and sicknesses in the mind. We are habitual thinkers, substance abusers and habitual drinkers. But free your mind because the plug is watching from the top floor, hoping you too will fall for the illusions of a temporary high. What we think we need to get by. But
1: are we really trying- Welcome back. I'd like to take a little time for some introductions. Think about who are you and who claims you? I'd like to start with our elder, Miss Anita.
2: I am Anita. I am known in the community as Chicky. I am a servant. I am a Christian. I am a Black woman. I encompass all that that means to the world, to my Black man, to my Black family. I am claimed by Alma and Matt Thiel. And John, I am the result of generations of harm and hurt and resilience and strength and love and excellence. I am a servant. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Anita. Going
1: to the opposite end of our spectrum, my niece, Taylor. Who are you? Who claims you?
3: I'm Taylor Dominique, and I am a young Black woman who is trying to find her path, who is trying to encourage our youth to look beyond just this whiteness in our world, but look beyond themselves, look into their culture, reach into themselves, look into our history. I am claimed by my students, my family, my community. I am a servant just like Miss Anita. I'm ready to serve the community of our youth. I'm ready to serve them greatness and listen to their intelligence and their brilliance, listen and answer any questions that I can. But I am here to serve our youth and empower them and let them know that they can amount to anything and anyone in this world. They don't have to settle for less or settle for anything, but that they amount to so much more. Just listening to my kids in the meetings that we have, they are so aware and so critical of the things that are around them. And we take that for granted most of the time. We think they don't know much, but our kids know so much. One of my little black boys in my class, he told me, he said, you know, my mom teaches me how to act at a traffic stop. And I said, well, how was that? And he said, well, when they pull you over, You put your hands out and, you know, you don't get your ID, but let them get your ID. You don't pull for anything. And that broke my heart because, like I said, we take their intelligence. We take their knowledge for granted. We don't think that they see anything, right? We think they're just under shell. We don't encourage much. So I want to encourage and empower our youth because they know so much more than we realize. They know so much more than what we realize.
4: Thank you.
1: (laughs) Proud. Miss Tanisha. Who are you? Who claims you?
4: I am Tanisha. I am a queer black woman in the United States. I am multiracial in a interracial POC relationship. I am a adoptee uh, raised by a white family, a white single mother in poverty. I am a social worker. I am a educator and a guide I'm also a manifester and manifest for myself and my community what is needed. I'm claimed by my queer and trans, Black, Indigenous communities of color. I'm claimed by many other folks who don't always deserve to claim me. I'm claimed by my wife, Erica, and my beautiful puppies. And I'm also hope to be claimed by my future children. So thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for being here. <laughs> Miss Lillian, who are you? Who claims you?
5: It's great to be here. My name is Lillian Beatrice Hawkins. I am a mother of my 15-year-old son, Francisco, AKA Franco. I am a sister, the youngest of 14 children from east to west coast. I am a daughter And my mother, Marilyn Wilson-Hawkins, and father, Kenneth Hawkins Sr., I'm claimed by them. And who am I? I am learning that now through this process. When I was six months old, my father died and my mother never remarried or brought another man into the house. And so I am a biracial woman. My mother is white. My father is black. And because of my mother marrying a black man, she was disowned. So I don't know much about my mother's side. When my father died, it was her raising four young children on her own. And on my father's side, most of his family was on the East Coast, but they embraced my mother. And that was my family. But beyond my parents, I don't know much more. So finding out Who I am and where I come from is very, very through that process now. My purpose is to serve in any way, shape, or possible to make this a better place for everybody, specifically for our children. And I look forward to this conversation.
1: Glad to have you, Lillian. It's Deborah. Who are you? Who claims you?
6: My name is Deborah Robinson-Baker. I was a Robinson before a baker and I like to say that. And I was a Phillips before a Robinson. So I am claimed by both of my fathers who are both named James and my mother who is named Deborah, I'm named after her. We are both named after the gifted one in scriptures who is known as a leader and known as a judge. I am claimed by my grandmother, Quincy Avery Alice Scott, and my husband, Kevin Baker, and his family, the Bakers. And then I'm claimed by my two sons, my brothers, my adult students, my beloved community, and those who experience me and claim me, those that I have not even met but who have come in contact with me. I'm a proud black woman. I'm a beautiful brown skinned woman that is considered black. I'm a student, probably of social science. Some would say I'm a priest. Many would say I'm an educator. I am a social worker. I am a social scientist. I bear gifts and I own them. One of which is a healing gift that I've known about since a child. And so I bring that forward in my work in many ways. And I'm one who walks in the footsteps of the one who gave his life for me, and that being Christ. And then I am one who's on a journey with that one. And I would say, not the one that white culture has taught us about, but one who, I walk within spirit every day to get to know, that I walk in relationship with every day to get to know, not one who has harmed and one whom we've been introduced to, that we've been taught that harms and forgets about us, but one who cares and accepts and loves. And so I'm one who also walks in grace. And that's who I would say I am.
1: Yes, ma'am. You most certainly are. Thank you. Going into the conversation, now that everyone has had a formal introduction to the brilliance that is you, the song that played, what came up for you as you listened to the spirit, lyrics, and tones in the song? We'll start with Lillian.
5: The need for inner peace is something that stuck out to me within that song and I think about the struggles and the disruption and the trauma that's been endured for a very long time and not being settled with self and so finding the inner peace within self so that I can be the best me and serve my purpose on this earth was something that came to my mind and what I was feeling when I heard that song. Yeah, it's the first thing that came to me.
1: Thank you. Miss Tanisha, what came up for you as you listened to the spirit lyrics and tones in the song?
4: Well, one I was reminded about how much music and sound is is really healing, and I've I've been reflecting on that a lot more in ways in which what Western medicine, therapy, etc. can't offer me, music and sound really can. So that was a great reminder. I was also thinking, you know, there were a couple lines about illusions of a temporary high and repeating the cycles, and wealth is attainable with their currency and Reflecting a lot on the ways, the who's the there, that being white, cisgender, straight, wealthy men in our society and the ways in which, especially as Black women in the United States, no one wants to see us succeed. Things are consistently and constantly built on the backs of Black women. And even when there's an opportunity for progress, it is at the expense of Black women and just sitting with that.
1: Thank you. Taylor, what came up for you as you listened to the spirit, lyrics, and tones in the song?
3: Ooh, there was a lot. That song was deep, it ran deep. A lot of realities, a <laughs> reality check, too. I thought a lot about capitalism, white supremacy, <laughs> especially. I felt like that was heavy. The things that we are taught in this world. I also thought about the miseducation that is in a lot of the schools, the books that they show us, the curriculums that they teach us. Yeah, that's where my mind was headed there, was, you know, <laughs> the reality isn't taught. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm wrestling with. Thank
1: you. Miss Deborah. I came up for you as you listen to the spirit, lyrics, and tones in the song.
6: I thought about the words that were stated around, we are all slaves to a generation socialized and sicknesses in the mind. We're all habitual thinkers and substance abusers and habitual drinkers. And I thought about this concept of, of we are all swimming around in the pool of whiteness and we're all taking it in and we're all socialized by it. So when I think about that, the healer in me wants to really think about how we, as a Black people, drank the water, the tainted water, and then how might we, how might I then turn and oppress the one who looks like me, the one who is meant to sit with me, the one who is meant to serve me, the one who is meant to love me. And then, how do I turn to them and oppress them because I'm drinking the water of the oppressor? So that's what comes up for me when I hear those particular lyrics in the song.
1: Thank you. Miss Anita, what came up for you as you listened to the spirit lyrics and tones in the song?
2: The first thing that struck me was the soulfulness of the bass and the drums, and how there is something deeply planted within us that connects us to the bass and to the drums, and that beat, and how I believe that that draws us back, keeps us connected to the motherland. I feel it inside of me, the drums. beat, the bass. And as I listened to the words, certain words stood out for me. Proof is one of those words. It's a concept that I have been living with over these last months since Brother Floyd's life was taken on the concrete in a street where a man with a gun and the power of the state stole his breath by the power of the state without even taking his hands out of his pockets. And the proof of all of the other brothers who have been stolen and the video has provided the proof of the truth of what my people have said for decades and generations. Proof of the truth. (sighs) That stuck out for me. And a word that was not in the song, but which was brought to my mind, was annihilation of a people based on so much incoming, the systems, the structures, the constant fight. I think of my grandparents and their grandparents, and I can't help but through the words of that song, think about, is it all a plan? Has it all been a plan? Not only to use our bodies, for capitalistic gain, but then to annihilate us, to destroy us, to end us. And then I thought about, and my sister spoke to it, I am on a journey and the song spoke to the journey of decolonization of my mind and my soul and my heart a journey to eradicate from inside of me anything that makes me feel less than, to remove all of the brainwashing to me, about me. And when I listen to these young women, I hear that in them. So it brought clearly to the front of my mind my own work in decolonizing my mind. And then lastly, of course, I could not miss the refrain, the Lord is coming, he's coming, he's coming for his people. And I have always somewhere in my heart believed there is a special place in heaven for black women, for how we carry our men our babies, our elders, each other, our communities, how we carry white men, white women, the privileged, how we protect everybody on our backs, how we rear, how we guide everybody all the time, how we can't be weak, how we can't be angry, how we can't be tired, those are the things that came to me. And lastly, when the sister rapped and spit the words about electing the Antichrist, it just takes me back to what I believe, which is this is not about good and bad people. This is not a battle of flesh and blood. This is a battle in my way of believing of good and evil in high places, just playing its way out in the flesh. The Lord is coming. that's what I took at the end. In fact, I feel his presence walking amongst us in a way that I have not before. That's what came to my mind. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you for sharing so deeply, so honestly. When you think about where it is in your body that these feelings are coming from, please share with the audience, where did you feel that? Where where in your body did you feel this and what did it feel like? We'll start with Taylor.
3: I felt in my gut and in my heart and my chest, especially in my gut. <laughs> I mean, anything that I feel is is right, right there. I feel that way because... Feel like, I've been serpent, you know, there is an act of genocide on the black community. <laughs> there, there is, it's like an act of genocide on the black community, and yeah, that's we need a moment.
1: <laughs> that's fair, Miss Deborah. Where did you feel it in your body, and what did it feel like?
6: I would answer in this way when I feel oppression. I internalize it, thus internalize depression. And I often ask myself, as do many of us as women and as a community, what is wrong with me? What must I have done? Why, where, and when would I ever be good enough? Why can't they accept me just as I am? Why do I have to work harder than my white counterpart? And so when I think this lodges in my body, I can tell you for a fact it has lodged itself many times and most often in my reproductive organs and in my reproductive systems. So much so that I'm not able to bear children. And so my sons are not my birth children. Racism, oppression, trauma, right? Lodges in the deep places and in the most precious places of women. It's meant to take us out and it's meant to stop us from being able to reproduce. And I've carried that for quite some time. And yes, it's racism. Yes, it's oppression. Yes, it's internalized oppression. And as a result of all of that, then trauma that then results in a physical ailment that causes me to have to have my organs removed. That's where it lodges.
1: Lillian, what are you feeling in your body and where, what did it feel like?
5: Thank you Miss Deborah, for sharing that. That was courageous for me. I feel it in my throat most of the time, and I wear it on my face, which restricts me from really speaking and sharing my gift and what God is giving me. And there's all these rules, right, in the system. You can't be this. You do this wrong. And I I believe it. I believed it, and I know that I'm learning. When Miss Anita talked about decolonizing, I really am so thankful for a platform like this because it's helping me through that process and to understand who I am and what gift God has given me to serve my purpose on this earth. It doesn't matter how much education you have it doesn't matter how far you go in school or how much money you make i always thought if i my mom instilled in me that if you just go to school and get a degree it's going to be better and it doesn't get better it doesn't change going through school and just going through life i've been taught that i am inadequate that i am not smart And if I speak up that it will be wrong or I will say something stupid and it proves what I've been taught. And so I think that's why I feel it most in my throat. But when I do speak and when I'm able to be my authentic self and really open my mind, that goes away,
3: that's it.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you everyone. Well, Sunita, where do you feel it in your body and what did it feel like?
2: I know exactly where I feel it because I had a beautiful sister. She is a somatic counselor and she helped me to pinpoint what trauma based on racism and terror does to my body. There was a situation in my work where I was threatened for my work. And in that moment, when I was at my office alone on a Sunday, I will never forget it, catching up on emails and work and phone messages. And I picked up the phone and I listened to a message and it was a threat. And in that moment, I knew the terror That my ancestors felt when the KKK rolled up into their yards in the night. I felt it. I felt the terror of the ages. And it changed me in a moment. And I sought help. And a white sister led me to a beautiful Black woman who specializes in helping Black people who are equity and social justice and anti-racist practitioners. And I spent many, many hours with her. And she helped me to pinpoint what that trauma, what that fear, not only of the moment, but of the ages where I carried it. And I carry it in my hips, in my stomach, in my hips. And I, too, am not able to have children. And I carry it today. It changed my life, but I know how to manage it because I have help. You will see me rocking back and forth, or I, I rock side to side. If you think about it, you see many sisters rocking. We may not know what it is or why it is, but it centers me. I wear an anklet every day that makes noise so that I can center my being as I move, as I walk. It helps me center my trauma as I do this work. I carry it in my hips, but I know how to manage it. And so when you see me rocking, I am centering. I am managing the generational trauma that I feel, that I live with, that I walk with, and I talk with, and I work with, and I eat with, and I sleep with every day. So I know where I carry it. In my hips.
1: Thank you. Miss Tanisha, what are you feeling in your body, in... What
4: does it feel like? I'll be honest, when you first asked that question and I get asked that in in different spaces for different reasons, I've existed for so long disconnected to my body. And that is a journey that I am on in just the last year or so is, is reconnecting with my body. And I appreciate you all and I especially appreciate Deborah and Anita one of my biggest fears is that I I won't be able to have children, and my wife and I are trying to get pregnant right now, and so I'm I'm trying to do some of that work so that I, I'm able to manage so that I can birth children, because that's the only thing I've ever known I wanted in my life, is to be a mother. And I'm not going to let white folks, and I'm not going to let the system of heterosexism and... And the patriarchy takes that away from me, and so I I really appreciate you both, and it just reminds me of my need to continue to do the work that I'm doing. And Anita, I'm gonna need a, a set of contact information. Because doing equity and social justice work as a queer Black woman who's young, and I thought that, yeah, I'd get a master's degree, I'd be articulate, I'd collude with whiteness, and I would get somewhere. And it's never enough. It's not enough for the white folks. It's not enough in a lot of Black spaces that I'm in as well. And so I want to reconnect with my body so that I can answer that question. And so that my children can answer that question.
1: You all are amazing. You're beautiful. I value you. I love you. I'm going off script. I have to. This is important. And as a Black man in our community, I have to do a better job of covering you, protecting you, holding you, shielding you. And so I'm taking that charge. And I'm asking you also to forgive me for where I have failed in living into this responsibility. I will do better. I also acknowledge that life comes in so many different forms, so many different forms. And I also recognize that life is brought forth through women in all those forms. Life comes forth through women. As carriers of life, What gives you life and what has to be done to birth life into our sustained co-liberation? Deborah?
6: I was hoping you would pick me first. You know, one of the things I've heard on this call with my beloved sisters is how much we endure. We take in, suck up, hold, manage, and all of those are good things. And yet, as both Anita and I have said, it harms us very deeply we pay a high price and often in silence. So the first thing, and I appreciate what beautiful Tanisha said about self-care, because I think Anita and I came in a time where that was the thing to do, to suck it up, take it on, get through it, survive it. And I still know many women that do that. And I'm not suggesting That we don't, what I am suggesting is that we think differently and that we do the self-care. There's more information available, resources available. Get the care. There's no harm in having a therapist, having a somatic healer, having whatever it is you need, figuring it out, rocking, wearing the bells, finding quiet places to scream whatever it is we need, right? But practicing the self-care at all costs. And then the other thing I would say is for me, since I have not been able to birth my own physical children, I am passionate and I am intentional. And those who have sat in my leadership courses know that I'm about it. I believe that each of us have purpose, each of us have brilliance. And so I really pour myself into that. There are other ways and areas in which I educate that I pour myself into because I need for this to get better. I need for there not to be another woman who loses the ability to have children because of racism, oppression, and even internalized oppression. So the harm that I've endured, it hasn't always been at the hand of white folks. Let me be clear about that. Some of it has been at the hand of us because of racism and internalized oppression. So I decided not to allow pain to paralyze me, but to allow it to inform me, to allow it to reshape me, if you will. Yeah. So that's what I would say, John.
1: Thank you, Deborah. Tanisha, as carriers of life. What gives you life? What has to be done to birth life into our sustainable
4: collaboration? I think to Deborah's point, the nudge and the access to care, whether that be for self or our collective care, as well. I come, again, from the perspective of doing, quote, equity and social justice work in a predominantly white institution. And in our Western society, we are so individualistic and there's so much collective need to even sit in a space like this and have this conversation, this wisdom, this sharing in ways that would never have happened otherwise, to be able to learn from my elders' experiences and here ways in which I can do better for them as well. I think I will, what's the saying? I'll die on this hill or something, which I don't know what the origins of. So (laughs) excuse me if that's a problematic saying, but I need us to get more intersectional. In order for me to survive, I need for us to do better. I don't join many Black spaces because of my intersection of queerness. And, you know, some of this is just lumping folks together because of the ways in which I've experienced harm, especially from older Black men. I need us to do better. And to do our own collective work while also challenging other communities of color and white folks to do the work on our behalf and on their own behalf. But I really need us to do better.
1: I'm gonna do better, sis, I'm gonna do better. Miss Anita, as carriers of life, what gives you life? What has to be done to birth life into our sustainable collaboration?
2: Oh, brother, what gives me life? What has to be done? Mm. What gives me life are these young Black women. It gives me life to see them opening up to their brilliance, beginning to recognize their own value. Lillian, Tanisha, Deborah Taylor. They give me life. What gives me life is the ability as an elder to speak into their being, their value to help open them up to all that they are that is right and true and decent and strong and life-giving and to see them open their eyes up even a little bit to who they truly are. Lillian, Deborah, Taylor, Tanisha, and so many more. What gives me life is the honor of being called an elder, considered an elder by these young, bright, strong, brilliant women and men. What gives me life is learning my role as an elder, realizing it is not for me to do hand-to-hand combat anymore for you young, brilliant soldiers are there to do that, but that it is for me to guide and protect and go in front of and stand behind and beside as we all take on our different roles in our different stages of life. What gives me life is holding y'all up these young, brilliant, courageous young folks women and men, it gives me life to challenge business as usual, first and foremost, so that they won't have to do the same challenge. What gives me life is brothers who will say I will do better. That's what gives me life. What gives me life is holding y'all up, challenging the system, on your behalf, walking into the mouth of danger because I have earned the right to not just be dismissed for breaking down the walls. That gives me life. Challenge it so that you can come behind. Y'all give me life. And it is a life that I lay down for you. Thank you. Thank you, Miss Nita. Lillian,
1: as carriers of life, what gives you life? What has to be done to birth life into our sustainable collaboration?
5: I am so honored and thankful for the brilliant women here today and the elders. And what gives me life? First and foremost is faith, thanking God every day recognizing the blessings in silent storms, focusing on the positive and what my duty is. What gives me life is elders, like Miss Anita and Miss Deborah, knowing that they have my back and thanking them for paving the way for me to be able to receive the torch that is being passed down, to continue to fight for our children, children and their futures, that, thinking about that and knowing that that's my duty, that gives me life. And also taking care of myself so that I can continue to do what my duty is to do. As I learn how to do that and receive the wisdom and knowledge and the mentorship, feeling a little bit better in spaces having spaces like this to share with brothers and sisters it's healing and what gives me life is experiencing this experience in space and knowing if not me then who and i'm really thankful and i'm thankful for this blessing for this space to share it with everybody here And I want the elders to know that I am going to suck up all of the game and receive everything that they have to share and invest. And I want them to know that it's an investment well made. I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that I live up to the expectation of what's needed to be done to move this journey forward, to continue making it better. And just knowing that having the support and that I'm not alone gives me life. Recognizing my brilliance and what I have to offer and transforming and seeing the change and learning myself and being proud of who I am gives me life, and being a part of a brilliant family here gives me life.
1: Thank you. Taylor, as carriers of life, what gives you life?
3: What has to be done to birth life into our sustainable co-liberation? support and encouragement. It makes me so excited and happy to see my elders proud of the things that we do as the youth. It makes me so excited to see the change in schools when my students see themselves in the books that they're reading, when they don't just see another white person or another animal teaching them a life-altering decision. It makes me happy when they're proud of themselves because they learned something, because the white kid wasn't right in the class. It makes me proud and happy, and it gives me so much life, so much life, to see the smiles on my kids' faces. It gives me life when my 10- and 11-year-olds have more common sense than most of these adults out here. It gives me hope. That encourages me. It gives me hope when... My 10 and 11 year olds tell me, well, it isn't the black and brown folks out there rioting. It's the police officers that change their clothes after their shift and go back and destroy the targets. That gives me life. (laughs) It gives me life when my grandma texts me and says, my baby made it. That gives me life. It gives me life when I wear my Afro or when I want to wear my cornrows, or when I want box braids. It gives me life when I decide to shave my head into a mohawk, or if I just shave it all the way. Man, it gives me life that I have hips. It gives me life that, hey, one day I can't fit these pants, but next day I can. It gives me life. It gives me life that I have shape. Mm, It gives me life that my hair is real coarse, that's okay. Mm-hmm. That's okay. I'm proud. I'm proud to be black, and that gives me life itself. Being black gives me life. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
1: Yes. Miss <laughs> Deborah, you wanted to uh, add a little bit of something there.
6: Yeah. Thank you. I- I appreciate that. It gives me life when I walk by my black men and they acknowledge who I am because I look like them, because I am them. And they choose not to walk by me and ignore me and turn their face from me because I am their mother, I am their sister, I am their grandmother. That gives me life. It helps me to know I'm seen, heard, and loved. And no, I don't think that you're always coming on to me. I think you're simply just saying hello to me. And I find my strength in you when you do that. I can survive another day. I can get through the doggone meeting, right? And then I will say this. I'm asking myself a question in the wake of, I started in the wake of COVID, and now I'm looking in the wake of the fact that I matter. My Black life matters. And I'm asking myself, who am I being in the moment? And then who might I become as a result of all of this? Because I should not leave this moment the same way in which I stepped into the moment. And I don't care if you're black, blue, red, purple, green, you should not step into the moment. You should not leave this moment the same way that you stepped in. So who am I being in this moment? Who am I being today? And you know what? It's okay if I'm angry, if I'm upset, if I'm hurt, if I don't want to see a white face, if I don't want to explain to them why their racist views and their white skin bothers me. I don't have to explain that. But I do have to answer, who might I become? And do I really want to carry hatred? Will that really change the thing? And then who do I want to be on the other side of this when it's all said and done? So who am I being? Who am I becoming? And then who do I want to be on the other side of the thing? And I will get tactical for my tactical students and practical. We shouldn't have sat in COVID with Black Lives Matters and not come out with something, a different perspective, a different thought, some sort of shift. And I'll leave it there. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Yeah, different systems. What gets in the way of your ability to love in expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it? Start with Taylor.
3: What gets in the way of love? Hmm. I am engaged to a black man, and I think black love in itself is empowering. Um, can you come back to me on this one? <laughs> I
1: surely can. I surely, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I
3: surely
1: can. Miss Anita. What gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and, behavior and how we overcome it?
2: There's something about being older that clarifies things for you. What gets in my way of the ability to love is a, a couple of things. It is a lack of trust that is not my imagination. It is tangible things that have occurred over my life that proved to me that if I open myself up completely, I'm sorry, but more likely than not, there will be pain, disappointment. In this time, there are places where love comes so automatically. It is with my people. It is with black men, my sisters. That is not my struggle. I try to love even those who would oppress me, who would harm, who would minimize, who would marginalize, because I believe that only love can cast out darkness. And I think that as I age, I am able to identify different types of love. So in my heart, I feel like that filial love, right? Not talking eros, but that that filial, that familial love, it feels completely authentic to me. But there is a lot of danger in that kind of love. And I think I am learning about agape love. It is not necessarily that tender connection that I feel with my baby girls on this call, but it is a love that speaks to the good of everybody. And I got to tell you, I think it's not so dangerous, but it is good. It is right. It is those deep disappointments I must say, particularly from my white allies, many that I have trusted with a lot of me, only for it to be ultimately devalued, minimized, pimped for a certain gain. That is one of the things that hinders my ability to love in that way, that filial way. But it has taught me to love in the agape way with grace and forgiveness and a focus on the good for you, honestly, without putting myself in danger. So I don't know if that makes any sense to anybody, but I feel like there are different levels of love and the history, the historical truths that I've lived, there's something there. That makes me have to protect myself, and I think that might be a hindrance, except when I speak about differences. Love my white brothers and sisters. My spiritual belief system is to love even those who harm you, but I don't think that means just be a rug to be walked on. And pimped is the only word that comes to mind that really, I know that's harsh. I need forgiveness. And I also cannot just open myself up to be destroyed and pimped. But God is love. And that is my rock. So I continue to strive on the love tip. That mean I hate anybody just means I have learned to do a little protection of the tenderness that still lives within me. Just a little protection. Whether that makes sense or not, that's where I am. Just a little protection. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Miss Lillian, what gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it?
5: Thank you, Miss Anita, for sharing that. And I feel the same as far as Trust is the huge barrier for me to love and not feeling safe, especially when you think that you have some support from certain people, white allies, but it's really in their own interest to gain social power. And then my mind thinks, who do I trust, really? Who's really down to move this equity work forward? And at the same time, you still need them because they're positions of power. And I'm still struggling with how to overcome that. And honestly, learning and reaching out, I'm learning now, like really recently, to reach out to elders and sisters and brothers within my workspace to seek guidance. To me, it's so easy to see like, what needs to happen. And I get frustrated because why can't we just do this? And you have to go through all these hoops and barriers and systems to make a change. And when someone doesn't like or they can't see what we're trying to do, if they can't capitalize on it, then internal, intentional barriers are put in place. And when I see things like that, when I experience that from people and allies that I am vulnerable with because I'm doing this from my heart, it's really hard for me to see or want to love. And I am going down a spiritual path right now to learn. I'm opening myself up to receive it so that I can really be authentic and not internalize it. Internalized depression is also something that hinders my ability to love and to receive love because it gets clouded with what's real, who's really, and what's really. I'm learning to overcome with, again, experiences in safe spaces like this. I'm learning to use my voice to reach out and to understand, and I'm learning that it's bigger than me. And Miss Anita talks about connections and the collective and everything being interconnected. And why I say it's bigger than me is that I know that I'm learning that I need to be there for others, too. It's not just about me. And so being love and being support in any way that I can for those also going through internal or silent storms is a part of the process for me to overcome barriers of not receiving love and not giving love. I think that's, that's it.
1: Rich, rich, rich. Miss Nisha. <laughs> What gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved and how we overcome it?
4: I'm sitting with Lillian's last point around not letting, and I'm paraphrasing, not letting being loved be a barrier to loving. I have a hard time loving myself and others. And that roots from my childhood, from birth immediately. My biological mother wasn't allowed to keep me. And so I was in foster care until I was four years old and adopted at four, and that experience has sat with me. I don't think people actually have conversations enough about the ways in which adoption really impacts one's identity development and one's sense of self, whether that be from having grandparents who didn't want another multiracial baby and they didn't want to engage in kinship care to having family members of my adoptive and only family say they didn't want to take the little black child because they didn't want anybody to think that I was theirs to then being told by a mother that if I were her words gay that she would no longer support me she would no longer be in my life and so it's been a long journey of exactly that learning that I don't have to feel loved to love myself and others And I think I've relied so much on being filled by others that I've let that get in the way of filling myself and filling the other people that I care about. So I got to love my damn self. And that is a healing process for me to let other people love me and let myself love other people because similar to my reproductive health, I'm not going to let white supremacy, patriarchy, homophobia get in the way of love. And I tell folks that being a Black woman, being in relationship with a Korean woman, our love is radical and wanting to be a model for my fellow queer and trans, Black, Indigenous folks of color, our young ones, to say, you can be loved and be loved. And it is possible while it feels impossible. And we lose a lot of our siblings to that
2: impossibility. Yeah.
1: Miss Debra, what gets in your way of, of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? And how will you overcome it?
6: So, I think for me, I want to get practical because it feels right for me in the moment. And I think that what gets in the way is trauma. If I were to be honest about it, like layers and layers and layers of trauma, right? And how I recognize that is that I was watching a couple of TV shows, Netflix, whatever, and I thought that they would be really good shows. And one of them is, the other one, but the violence that I saw and the violence enacted upon women and a woman of color. And there was a time where I guess I could sit through that for the sake of the movie. And now I'm like, I can't. I just can't. I got to turn it off. I got to get up. I got to walk out, right? And so trauma and violence, I think, gets in the way. And how I address that is self-care, love, acknowledging my limits, not forcing myself to watch the movie, right? How many of us do that? And we know the Black woman's being raped, and we sit through that mess anyway. After we've had racism and oppression and what I realize is all of that desensitizes us so then it's easier for us to objectify and treat each other horribly and we don't even know why we're doing it and I understand there's realness of a story and trying to make it true to real life but some of the violence that's enacted that I take in just black on black it's not really who we are so paying attention to that. And again, how am I treating those who I love? If I continue to harm the one who I love, who will I have to love me in return? So oppressing those who look like me to get what? Okay, so what I get the raise, at what cost? It just, ah. So really asking myself the question again, who am I being in this moment? And is it in alignment with my integrity? Love relationships at home, I'm going to speak to it, providing a safe place to fall and to be in our love relationships, being present with each other, seeing each other, and really on double time over time, telling folks, our spouses and our loved ones, hey, I love you, I see you, you matter to me, you're significant, you're bright, you're brilliant, on double time, because all, I would dare to say, all of us are struggling on some level with what has occurred, with the killings, with the hangings that they're not acknowledging. I want to say, come on, somebody. So on double time, overtime, telling our spouses and our loved ones, and then when we're in the company of one another, either at work or in our friendships, hey, I see you, I hear you, I value you. You matter to me. That's how I overcome it. And I need that in return to allow the trauma to start to kind of dissipate. And then I will say for me personally, I think also what's helping me, and I have the capacity to do this until I don't, but right now I do, and I'm okay with it. It's my charge. It's my thing, and I'm all right with it. It's having conversations with white-bodied folks about racism and race and its impact and the history and how we're holding everything we're holding. It didn't just start with a knee to the neck. It's been there and doing the historical context about what white folks hold versus what we hold and the difference. And that's why a knee to the neck is a symbol of how our breath has been taken and it's taken daily because we're carrying generational stuff because there's been no acknowledgement. So I can do that unapologetically. I don't owe anybody. It's my thing to do until it's not. And when it's not, then I'll stop. But having those conversations, because still at some point, those folks are in the boardrooms. They're in the rooms that we're not in yet. And so it's important for me to be able to do that. And it, on some levels, for whatever reason, it tends to bring me a little bit of healing, I think. And that's just me. So thank you.
1: Thank you, Deborah. Tay Tay. What gets in the way of your ability to love and expression and behaviors and be loved? How will you overcome it?
3: I think communication is something that gets in the way. Talking, I feel, with especially our Black families, I feel like we don't do enough talking. And that gets in the way of loving one another, you know, communicating, talking about how we feel, talking to our youth about how we feel. I feel like our women, our black women, and our black men don't see enough of that enough of you know examples of talking just just simply talking about how we are feeling. I feel like we are often shut out, shut down, whether it's in public, whether we're in school, we're at work, or if we're at home you know it's let's not talk about our feelings it's just silence. you do what your parents say, you do. What your elders say, but it's well, let's talk, let's sit down and have these real conversations. let's hold a space. I want to know how your day was. I want to know you know what happened. I want to know what you're learning about. I feel like we're just not holding enough spaces for conversations. I feel like it would help a lot, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm engaged to a black man, and I feel like it's hard sometimes communication wise I feel like it's it's hard. I feel like we just need to open up. we need that, we need that, and once you have that, mm, I mean because talking to all of you right like this discussion is powerful it's beautiful I'm learning so much from each and every one of you so much and we just met (laughs) we just met so just having these powerful conversations man I could only imagine if this was happening more I feel like more love would be out there. There wouldn't be this barrier, this block so much. I feel like more love would be out there if we really understood each other and we really took the time to talk about how we felt, especially in Black households, Black and brown spaces. Yeah, yeah.
1: Thank you. (laughs) That's my niche, y'all. That's my (laughs) All who have the ability to love have the ability to heal. Gratitude. In three sentences or less, please share what you are grateful to for. Start with Lillian.
5: I'm grateful to God. I'm grateful for my family. I'm grateful for my brothers and sisters and elders here. I'm grateful for the blessings that I'm receiving by continuing to learn, grow, develop, and be a blessing to somebody else. That was more than what you asked, and I apologize.
1: You got grace and compassion coming from here over years. I believe that. Ms. Deborah, please share what you are grateful to for.
6: I am grateful to the Spirit of God that loves me so deeply I almost didn't make it, y'all. I almost didn't make it. And not just one time. So I am grateful for my very life. I am grateful for this time and for this, this time in history, for this time of history in the making, for this time in our culture, for this time, because we have been chosen for such a time as this. And we all have a part to play. I don't care what part of the earth you're sitting on as you're listening to this podcast. We have been chosen for such a time as this. And I'm grateful to sit in spaces such as this. To sit with brilliant, beautiful, Black, oh my God, amazing, incredible people and that I am considered and valued to be among you. And then lastly, I'm grateful for those who gave their lives before us, those in the civil rights movement and beyond. And I'm going to say those who were not named, who disappeared. Y'all know folks disappeared, and we still don't know where those bodies are buried. They gave us a footprint. We didn't have to enter this time and space unaware. Like we could name it. And to those who are white that might be listening to this and you are considered more than an ally, but one who stands in front of us and takes it to support us, I'm grateful for you and I'm thankful for you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Ms. Nisha, please share
2: what you are grateful to for.
4: I am grateful for all the people that have come before me and have guided me and really paved the way for me to sit in my power and to have space and guidance to heal in ways that they have not. Thank you.
1: Ms. Taylor, please share what you are grateful to for.
3: I'm grateful to God and to all of my ancestors that came before me. Man, I'm grateful to my mother. (laughs) Man, I'm grateful to that woman. I love her. I love her to death. Thank you. For giving me life, mm-hmm. to all my aunties, mm-hmm. to all the beautiful black women who are still here today, who have came before us, Fannie Lou Hamer, Dorothy Height, Polly Murray. I'm thankful for each and every black woman that whew, has empowered me to do this work, to continue to do this work, to empower our youth. Like I, I'm just I'm beyond grateful. I'm beyond, beyond, beyond grateful. So much gratitude to them. So much gratitude to all the black men to my uncle to my father to all my uncles <laughs> to my grandfathers I'm beyond grateful for everything that they have sacrificed so that I could be here today to do the things that I need to do to get business handled so let these white folks know that we're not a force to be reckoned with no no and I mean that in every positive way <laughs> but it's the truth But yes, yes. And uh, I'm I'm also grateful for love, for love. And I'm sending so much love to everybody.
1: Receiving that. Miss Anita, please share what you are grateful to.
2: I, like many of my sisters, I am grateful to God. I'm grateful for my mother planting the seed of knowledge of God in me. I'm grateful for my grandmother planting the seed in her. I'm grateful to God for being mine. I'm grateful for me being his. I'm grateful. Thank you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you for
1: sharing your medicine with me, with one another, with yourselves, with the listeners who will take the time to receive the medicine that is here. I wanna thank Indivisible and Stephen Cox for hosting this space. I wanna thank Chris Franco for connecting me with Stephen. I wanna thank the listeners for your time. I wanna thank my lovely partner who's taking on the responsibility of making sure that these four boys are doing what they need to be doing and not disrupting this medicine session. Family, friends, and community. And I want to close with this. We only run from accountability when we doubt our ability to act. Thank you. Be well.
0: Thank you so much to John Miller for this just incredible discussion and thanks especially to all of the participants. A big thanks this week to Madison Pate for her editing help. And like John, I will also say thank you to Chris Franco. The website for the show is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Cohen well. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.